0: My name's Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here. Thanks for joining us. I'm just going to say on Easter Saturday, I'm going to say that because I know at some point I've told some of you good morning or I've said, uh, uh, you know, I'll say Sunday or I'll say something during this message. So I'm just going to apologize up front for that that, and let you know that I do know it's Saturday uh, and I do know it's evening. And so thanks for being here with us. I appreciate that. I, I have a question for you. How many of you on a semi-regular basis, watch the news, listen to the news, or read the news, engage with the news in some way. Raise your hand. All right. That's what I figured. About probably 80% of the room. So <clears throat> how many of you that regularly watch the news believe we may be in the worst time in history or one of the worst times in history? Raise your hand. Was well, a lot more in the first service, uh, but there are a few of you. And I, I get that. I understand that. I, I, want you to, I want to tell you the Bible has something to say about that. But I completely, and we're going to talk about that tonight, that's what we're going to talk about, but I completely understand uh, where you're coming from if you believe that. In fact, uh, just this week, uh, we've had, what have we had this week? We had uh, U.S. bombing in Syria in response to a chemical weapons attack. We had uh, U.S. bombing in Afghanistan, dropping the mother of all bombs on uh, ISIS targets in Afghanistan. We've had uh, North Korea, appears to be closer to nuclear war than probably ever before. Uh, there's uh, another school shooting in San Bernardino that was almost buried in the news with all this other stuff that was going on. Uh, and one thing that wasn't buried in the news that we all saw was a man forcibly dragged off a United Airlines flight. Everybody's talking about that when we got all this other stuff going on. All this bad news in the news. And to top it all off, the Cubs are already a half game back in their fight to... In their fight to uh, Double in the World Series. Uh, Lots of bad news, and that's just the real news. If you want really bad news, you got to go to the fake news world, right? The world where children are held hostage in pizza places and RFID chips are implanted under your skin when you just went to the doctor to get a flu shot, and where, uh, I don't know if you saw this this week, women are dragged into ponds after trying to take selfies with alligators. That was fake news, but it happened this week. It didn't happen this week. So there's real news. There's fake news, but at Genesis Church, we're big fans of what's called the good news, right? There's good news this week. What do we celebrate on Easter? We celebrate the good news, that it's Easter and the tomb is empty, that's good news. See, we believe in this savior, this man named Jesus who walked the earth more than 2000 years ago. He he willingly gave up his life for us on the cross, but then on the third day he rose from the grave as a way of defeating death once and for all. Now I know some people in this room are here and you're not Christians and you may think how do you believe all that stuff? But this is real news for us, and it's good news. And here's what the good news uh, of Easter means to us. I'm going to just cover this real quick, and then we'll get on to the message. But there are 2 billion people or so around the, around the world that over this weekend are celebrating Easter, are celebrating something that has to do with this man named Jesus, who has clearly something to do with God. Here's why it's good news for us, three things. And if you're taking notes, these are in your notes. First of all, it means Jesus is who he claimed to be. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a strong claim. In fact, that sounds pretty exclusive to me, doesn't it? He didn't say, I am a way, or I am one of the ways, or I'm a pretty good way. He said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth. In other words, there is no other truth. That I am the way, I am the truth. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, No one can come to the Father except through me. And in fact, in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Jesus made some outrageous claims while he was on earth. You know, when he walked on the earth, he said, I'm God, I'm perfect, I'm the only way to heaven, I'm the Savior of the world. It's important to keep these things in mind because a lot of people want to make Jesus out to be this really good moral teacher. But think about your best teachers in high school. If one of them said something like this, you'd probably go looking for another teacher, right? Because clearly that can't be right. So it means that Jesus either was the biggest liar who ever lived or he was who he says he was. And when he rose from the dead, he proved he was who he he claimed to be. So that's good news. How, how could it be? I mean, how else could it be that we're still celebrating this man 2,000 years ago that split time in half? I mean, there's B.C. and there's A.D. You know what C stands for. It's Christ. This one person had such an impact on the world that he split time in two. Jesus is who he claimed to be. The second good news of Easter is that Jesus had the power he claimed to have. Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, because he uh, is God, he can do everything that God can do. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. I have the power to give it up and the power to receive it back again, as my father has commanded me to do. Nobody could keep Jesus in the tomb. I mean, the Romans killed him. They put him, they buried him in this tomb. They rolled a gigantic stone in front of it, put a Roman seal on the tomb, uh, Armed, had two armed guards watching it 24 hours a day, and yet they were just guarding the inevitable as the stone rolled away and Jesus walked out of the tomb. Heaven proved that God could not be stopped. Jesus had the power he claimed to have. And the third good news of Easter means that Jesus did what he promised to do. In Mark 10, he told his followers, he said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered uh, into the hands of the chief priests, or over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Just put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' followers for a moment. What do you think when you hear Jesus say this? here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered to the chief priest. It's like, it's like if you, um, we get done here and you ask uh, uh, another couple or you meet somebody and you say, hey, uh, can you want to go to dinner? And uh, they say, well, you know, I'd love to, but I'm going to Indianapolis. And even though I'm not going to do anything wrong, I'm going to be arrested and then I'm going to be tried and convicted. And I'm going to be put to death. But you enjoy your dinner Right, and you think well, that guy must be crazy. But then, what? Ha- six months later, you pick up a newspaper and you look, and this guy—it happened exactly like he said it would. What would you think about him? That's crazy. Jesus did exactly what he planned or what he, what he said he would do. He promised to do that. I mean, imagine what that was like. Jesus did that. He said those things and then he did what he promised. He gave up his life for you and me on the cross so that when you trust Jesus Christ with your life and when you seek him for the forgiveness of sins and you seek him with all your heart, we know that he will forgive our sin and cancel every debt we owe. Call it God's pardon program. Every wrong you ever committed, every wrong I've ever committed or will ever commit, Jesus nailed it to the cross. He paid for it, which means that you and I don't have to pay for it. And that, my friends, is good news. That is good news. And that's why we celebrate Easter. So I am so glad that you're here to celebrate with us. You know, we spent the three weeks, the last three weeks in this series called Romans 8. And even if you're don't know your way around the Bible very much, you could probably guess that we have been studying the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8, and so it would be a good time to turn there if you've got your Bibles with you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one of these on the floor around you, and it's page 786 in this Bible. Now, you may think, really, a whole three weeks on one chapter of the Bible? Well, I'll tell you, we're actually going to go five weeks, (laughs) we're going to spend five weeks on one chapter of the Bible, but it's a really rich chapter, And uh, so if you turn there now, just to catch you up, if you haven't been with us, uh, here's what we've talked about so far. And by the way, you can catch any of our podcasts on iTunes, just search Genesis Carmel, Genesis Church Carmel, or uh, we have an app, the Genesis Church app, and all of our podcasts for the last couple of years are on there as well. But week one, we talked about the uh, freedom that we have in Christ. We said that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And what that means is if you have chosen to follow Jesus, that there's no condemnation for you, that You're free. And then week two, uh, we talked about that, that, that we have the spirit of God living inside of us. If you have trusted Jesus with your life, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. God does. And uh, that's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what scripture tells us, that, that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. We have that same power living inside of us as Christians, that we are empowered. That's what we talked about week two. Week three, we talked about being adopted, that if you are in Christ, you have been adopted. You are a son of God you're a child of God, you have all the rights and privileges that come with being one of God's children if you are in Christ. And so today, uh, week four, we're going to look at how in Christ we can be redeemed. Now that word, redeemed, is a little bit old-fashioned. It's one that maybe you don't hear as much as you used to when your mom would take green stamps to the store and redeem them for prizes or cash. Um, But it's a really powerful word, and it means to gain possession of something or, or regain possession of something by paying a price for it. And that's what we celebrate on Easter, and that's what we learn in this section of Romans 8, is that God paid a price to redeem your life, to buy back your life, to buy back my life, and that's what we're going to talk about. I think the best way to set this passage up, though, is to talk about something we all have in common, because there's something that you have in common with each and every person in this room. Now, you may look around this room and think, I'm not really like these people, You may think you have nothing in common with them. Look around, just look around. Look at all the faces in this room. But you have something in common with all of these people. Even if you don't know them, even if you come from a different background, maybe you're from Sheridan, they're from Kokomo, you're from Carmel, and they're from Westfield, and you think, we got nothing in common, but you got something in common with them. Let me tell you what it is. It's the mess. We're all part of the mess. right? We're all part of this broken world and maybe you see that clearly when you watch the news on television like we talked about you turn on the news and you go man this is this is broken this is messed up this is not how it's supposed to be but maybe you don't even have to turn on the tv to see the brokenness because maybe the brokenness lives in your house like maybe the brokenness is in your marriage it's pain in your marriage maybe the brokenness is, is fears about your health and there's that just causing so much mess in your life. Maybe your mess is in school, it's your GPA, and you're nervous that I even mention that, those three letters right now because your mom's in the room and you don't want her to be talking about GPA because now she's going to ask you about it on the way home. And you're like, I don't really want to have that conversation now. We just got off spring break. I don't really care about my GPA. But maybe it's broken relationships with friends or people you thought were your friends. Maybe the mess is anxiety about money and finances and it's just a little tight or it's a lot tight. And if we could just get one more job or get one more uh, get one more bill paid off, man, it would be so much better. Maybe the mess is, just everything that's going on out there, it's, it's things you can't even control, but you look at them and you shake your head and you think, this is not how it's supposed to be. Don't we all have that in common? That we can see some areas of our life, some areas of the world, and we can, we can look at it and go, that's wrong. That's messed up. That is broken. Now, here's the good news about this. Here's the good news. Even though we all live in the mess, there is good news. It's no matter how messed up your life is, no matter how big a mess you've made, no matter how much you think you've strayed off the path... The good news for you is you can always find someone who's a bigger mess than you are. No, wait, that's not the real good news. <laughs> here's the good part. Honestly, here's the good part. If, if everyone, if all of us together can look at the world and think, that's not how it's supposed to be. Right. I mean, think about it, we're from different political backgrounds, we're from different places on earth, some of us are from different faith backgrounds, and if all of us together can look at the world and say, this is not how it's supposed to be, here's the good news, that means that somewhere in our hearts, we have been programmed with this idea that there is a way it's supposed to be, that there is a way things are supposed to be, and this is not it, and that's what Paul, the author of Romans, is going to tell us about today so if you have your Bibles open, we're going to start with Romans 8, verse 18. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to fairly quickly read through this passage, and I'm going to tell you how this relates, show you on the whiteboard, uh, even, how this relates to Easter. Okay, so this will be fairly quick, I think. Uh, Romans 8, 18 is where he starts. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, when you first read this verse, it sounds like Paul's getting all up in your business. Right? Like he's saying, you need to man up. Like, you can't worry about your suffering because it's, it, they're nothing. But that's not what he's saying. Okay, I want you to look. He says, there are sufferings, your present sufferings. He's acknowledging, you know, there's, there's pain, there's brokenness in the world. You will have sufferings. But he's encouraging us to look at our suffering with a different perspective. He's saying, okay, suffering is hard, but there's going to be glory coming And that glory is going to be revealed. And when that glory is revealed, you will forget all about the suffering, all about the mess, all about the brokenness you're experiencing now. Because the glory is going to be so great that the suffering is going to fade in comparison. And I was trying to come up with an analogy to help explain this verse this week. And I think I came up with one. And so uh, a lot of us just got back from spring break and we went to trips. So I just want you to imagine that you and your family, whatever your family looks like, you and your family are going on spring break and you decide you're going to go to Florida because Florida is a great spring break destination, and you go to West Palm Beach. And you want to you know, treat your family really well. You want to do something real nice. So you go to the... Uh, make a reservation at the Trump Plaza Hotel in West Palm Beach. And you fly into West Palm, and you land, and you get your rental car, and everything's going smoothly, and you get to the hotel, and you notice there's a line out the door to check into the hotel. And that's not what you expected. So you're in line for 15, 20 minutes, and finally get up to the... Uh, the hotel attendant, and uh, he uh, types in your name, and he gets this weird look on his face while he's looking at his computer, huh, like that, and you know that's not good news, right, when the hotel person does that, and so he types a few other things and starts typing, hitting the keys just a little bit harder and a little bit faster, a little more furiously, and what was the name again? Okay, now, would it, would it be this? I love when they ask this. Would, it, would you have registered under any other name like, like, that's what I do. I just, yeah, I have seven aliases. Let me try one of those. But, you know, they're looking furiously. They can't find anything. And uh, all of a sudden he goes, uh, sir, I think I know what happened. Why don't you have a seat? And uh, I'll come out and, uh, and help you in just a few minutes. <sighs> so you're frustrated. You get your family, you got all your bags. You walk over and you sit down in the seats and you wait. And you're waiting for another 15, 20 minutes. By now it's been 30, 40 minutes and... Your kids want to go to the pool. Your wife just wants to go sit on the beach. You're thinking about, man, we're wasting all this time. It's supposed to be our vacation. I'm furious. You call back to the office. and, How's your vacation going? Oh, let me tell you. It's not going well so far. Here's what's happened at the hotel. And then you decide, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to get on Twitter. And I'm going to fix it. And you tweet at Donald J. Trump and tell him about all the problems you're having at the hotel. All right? And then all of a sudden, um, the concierge comes over and says, Sir, I'm I'm terribly sorry. There was a huge mistake. We see that you had a reservation, but we don't have a room for you. But we've made other accommodations for you, so could you please come with me? So you grab your luggage, and you think you're going to go to a room in the hotel, but instead he takes you out to a limousine. And it's a really nice limousine. It's the one with the hot tub in the back. Well, that's the one I always dreamed about when I was in high school anyway, right? The one with the hot tub where the trunk's supposed to be. He takes you to whatever your dream limousine is. He takes you to this dream limousine and you start driving and you drive a few miles and you pull up to Mar-a-Lago. So now instead of the Trump Plaza Hotel, you're going to the president's personal residence and the concierge has said, I had to make some phone calls, but what we've done is we've cleared out the property for you. It will be at your disposal this weekend. And don't worry, we've left your rental car back at the hotel, but if you need to go anywhere, if you need to go to any restaurant, we I, I, I will leave the limousine and the driver with you. He will be at your service 24 hours a day. But there's no reason you should have to go to any restaurant because you will have full access to the president's personal chef 24 hours a day. You just ask for it, he will make it for you. You don't have to worry about anything. By the way, uh, the president is also providing you with uh, free tickets to Disney, Universal Studios, and SeaWorld. And if you want to go there, you don't have to worry about the limousine. You can just take his helicopter on the roof. The pilot will be here 24 hours a day. You don't have to worry about it. And by the way, we've cleared off the entire 400 yards of beach, Atlantic Beach for you. It's all yours to use. All four swimming pools are yours. There won't be anybody coming up reserving beach chairs. All right, They're all yours. You pick whatever chair you want. You can sit wherever you want. You can eat whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can do whatever you want. Please Accept our apologies and enjoy your vacation. Now, when you get back in the office on Monday and somebody says, How was your vacation? (laughs) Aren't you going to talk about how incredible that was? And you had the best lobster, and you had the best brunch, and you went to Disney, and you took a helicopter to Disney. You got to go right past the lines and helicopter into Disney, and the limousine took you everywhere, and you had your own private beach, and you had your own private swimming pools, and your coworker says, said, that's great. I'm so glad you had a good vacation, because about half an hour in, I saw this tweet that you were not having a good time at the Trump Plaza Hotel and you had forgotten all about that. Because the glory that was revealed to you kind of put your present suffering in perspective. That's what Paul says is happening here. It was a long time for one verse, wasn't it? Sorry. We'll go faster, I promise. Verse 19. He says for creation, for the world, for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be liberated from bondage to decay. Now listen, he's saying the world's broken, right? but it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, I've read before, I don't want to make a big deal out of this, okay, but I've read before that the two most painful things that an average person can experience are childbirth and passing a kidney stone. That the pain of those two is quote. Now, again, I'm not trying to make a big deal out of this, okay? But I can tell you, I can attest to the fact this is true. I have personal experience with this because I have personally been in the room with a woman who was in labor pains. And so I know exactly how painful it is. Okay, ladies, I'm, not, I'm really not trying to make a big thing out of this, okay? But that, that's what they say, that labor delivery, that childbirth and passing a kidney stone on a purely physical level, that those two things are the same, that they're extraordinarily painful. But how people process that pain is very different, right? Because I've never heard anybody pass a kidney stone and say something like, I wonder if the Lord will ever bless me with another one. Right? You just don't say that. Now, if a woman has a baby and she, goes, she sits through the pain of childbirth, she might say, I can't wait to have another baby. Or I hope the Lord blesses us with another baby. But when you pass a kidney stone, I mean, I know some sick freaks that keep their kidney stone in a jar up on their fireplace mantle, right? But mostly, you don't keep that stuff. But when you have a baby, hopefully, you keep that baby around until it grows up and becomes a, a full-grown adult, right? The pain is the same, but the outcome is different. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying the present suffering, yes, but it's like the pains of childbirth. It's leading to something beautiful. It could be leading to something good in your life. Your pain, Paul says, the Bible teaches, your pain doesn't have to be wasted that God can redeem your pain. He can turn it into something beautiful in your life. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are or how much you've messed up or what you've done or how you think you may have wasted your life. If you're not dead, you're not done. Paul says God could have something amazing for you. Maybe that the pain you feel is God giving birth to something beautiful in your life. And then he continues, verse 23. Not only so, he says, but We ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, okay, Christians, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, wait right there. We wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Now, last week, Ben was here, and he said that we've already been adopted as sons. What is Paul talking about there? Well, what he's talking about is our ultimate adoption in heaven, He's talking about the redemption of our bodies. Many of you know I celebrated a birthday this week, and um, every birthday I celebrate, my body is getting older, and it doesn't work right, uh, more and more, and I am eager now for this day when my body will be redeemed in heaven. Nobody said amen at that, but... um, I'm eager for that day, but this is a great example of what many scholars call the, the kingdom of already, but not yet. You know, that there's, this, there, we already have this, it's almost like in this passage, and, and in fact in a lot of Romans 8, it's almost like God is giving us this glimpse of this kingdom that's to come, and he's going to show us a little piece of it, reveal a little piece of it, but someday it's all going to be revealed to us, and we'll be able to see it more clearly. And that's what Paul's uh, saying here, okay? And so verse 24, he says, for in this hope we are saved, in the hope of being redeemed, but this hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now we wait patiently because patiently is how you wait when you're pregnant. Because if you wait impatiently when you're pregnant, it doesn't do you any good. That baby is not coming until it's ready. And it doesn't matter how anxious. How impatient you get, you cannot make that baby come until it's ready, and God is the same way, and God's redemption is the same way. If you get impatient with it, you get anxious, you have a tendency to jump ahead of where God is, and that's not going to work. That we got to wait patiently for God to do His work. And then Paul finishes this section with this promise and this encouragement. Hopefully this will be encouraging for you, uh, no matter where you are on your faith journey today, Romans eight twenty six. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Who ever gets to a point where you do not know what you ought to pray for? We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This is so good, guys. This is so important because if you're a Christian, what you need to know is that when you're praying, God's Holy Spirit is right there praying alongside of you. He is praying for you. He is interceding for you. And this is so good. This is such good news. And then what may be uh, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Now, two things. Notice this verse does not say God works for the good of God. He does, but that's not what this is about. It says it works for the good of those who love him. If you are in Christ, God works all things for your good. Even when it doesn't look like it, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when you don't know it yet, God's working all things for your good. And then the second thing I want you to notice about this verse is the very first three words says, and we know. It's not we're guessing God's going to work all things for good, that maybe someday we're assuming maybe God's going to work all things for good. We know, we have confidence in the fact that God works all things for good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's so important. Being conformed to the image of his son, that he might that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Now there is an awful lot in that passage. We could do five weeks on that. But how does it relate to Easter? Like, what is it that Paul is trying to tell us? How do we simplify that a little bit? And especially if you don't, if you only uh, come to church a couple times a year, that's a big passage to try to digest. And so, I want to. Uh, that's why I have the whiteboard out here. I thought I'd draw a picture and try to walk through what it means for us, what Paul is saying, and how it works for us in Easter. And I've drawn this diagram in your message notes, so you can follow along if you want. Um, but but here's what Paul is saying. He says. Uh, he says that creation groans, all creation is groaning, right? He, he's, he's acknowledging what we all already agreed on, that we live in a broken world, that there is brokenness in the world. He's saying that, that we're broken. We look around, we see war, we see disease, we see poverty, we see relational strife, we see things in our life that we know aren't right. Paul's just acknowledging, hey, there's a lot of brokenness in the world. But why is creation groaning about this brokenness? Well, because We know that that's not how it's supposed to be, right? We already acknowledge that the good thing about us recognizing that it's broken is that it means that we all have in our hearts and plan in our hearts that there is a way things are supposed to be. And we call that God's plan, that God's original plan, if you haven't read the Bible, uh, what you should know is that God had an original plan for the world to be perfect, that we would be in perfect relationships with one another, that we would be in perfect communion with God. That was his original plan. And so you may hear that and think, well, how do we get from an all-powerful God that has this plan for things to be perfect to a world that's broken? Well, it's because God gave us free will and we chose sin. Now, sin is a word you will only hear in church or maybe in Las Vegas uh, when they talk about Sin City. But you don't hear sin very often. It's not a very popular word, but sin just means that we're turning away from God's plan. And the truth is that every one of us in this room, the other thing we have in common is that all of us at some point in our life have turned from God's plan. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And that sin caused the brokenness in this world. It also brought death into the world. One of the things that you may not know is that men and women were never meant to die. The original part of God's plan was for man and woman to live forever. In fact, there's no death in the Bible until Genesis chapter 3. The very first death we see in the Bible is when uh, Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, and they realize they're naked, they run away, and God has to kill, sacrifice to kill some animals to make skins for them. That's the first time we see death in all of Scripture. Man and woman were not meant to die, but our sin brought death into the world. Now, so here's the problem with that. We all, you and I acknowledge that we live in this broken world, but but creation is groaning. Like, it doesn't want to be broken. We don't want to be broken. We don't want to live in brokenness. So what do we do? Well, what you and I do is we try to find ways out of the brokenness on our own. And so some of us uh, look for significance in money and possessions. You know, we think, well, if I could get a better job... If I could buy a bigger house, if I could drive a nicer car, if I could dress like this celebrity, if I could wear those clothes, um, you know, whatever it is, if I could have those things, even though I'm still living in a broken world, my life would be better. Some of us uh, look for uh, relationships. We do it through people, uh, whether it's friendships or romantic relationships. We we jump from one romantic relationship to another, trying to find that fit. You know, we're trying to escape that brokenness by people pleasing, and so even maybe it's our friendships, and we just try to keep all of our friends happy, and so we go from place to place trying to keep people happy, but we're we're never thinking about what God may have for our life. We're not thinking about what we need, and so we do that sometimes. And some of us just try to numb the brokenness with drugs or alcohol or food, and we use that to kind of run away from our brokenness. Now the problem is that all of this stuff. Is temporary. Like all of these things that we use to try to escape brokenness on our own, they're all temporary. And temporary things can't solve what is an eternal problem. This is where God steps in. Because God uh, looks down and he sees our brokenness. And he sees that it's causing death. And he comes up with a plan. Now, what you and I, how, here's how you and I are different than God. Right? When we see a broken situation, or broken person, we don't tend to run toward it, right? Most of us. We run away from it. Uh, when, when, uh, and, and if you're a parent, you wouldn't dare send your kid into a broken situation, right? If, you, if they have a friend who's got a messed up family, you don't go, why don't you go spend the night over there? In fact, why don't you go spend the weekend with that weird broken Messed up family. You know, we don't do that, right? We don't. If you're a parent again, uh, and you see a neighborhood that's particularly dangerous, you don't say to your kid, "Why don't you go on into that neighborhood and try to clean that up?" Well, we don't do that. Why? Well, because as people, we know that there's danger in those things, right? But but here's the thing: God's not like us. His ways aren't our ways, the Bible says, that his ways are higher than our ways. It says as the, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways. So God decided not just to look down on creation and wave a magic wand or, or cast some spell, like I'm sure he has the power to do, and fix it. What he decided to do is enter into it. In fact, he sent his son. God's plan for redemption of all this brokenness was a man named Jesus. He sent his son Jesus, and Jesus came to earth, but he didn't come as a king, he didn't come as a soldier, he didn't come as a warrior, he came instead as a baby who became a boy, who became a teenager, who became a man who lived a perfect life and set an example for all of us to follow and then ticked some people off and went to the cross and died. And he took the death that we deserve for our sin and our brokenness. Jesus took all of that on and he hung it on the cross. But Jesus didn't stay dead because on the third day, scripture tells us he rose from the grave. He defeated death and God showed in that that he can defeat anything that's going on in our life. He can take any bad situation, even his son dying on a cross and redeem it for the good of humanity. And that's what God did. Now, how do we take advantage of this? If if God's plan to get us out of the brokenness and death back to God's plan is Jesus, how do we do that? Well, we have to do two things. First, we have to turn away from our sin and brokenness. We have to decide, you know what, this is not the life I want to live. I don't want to keep pursuing money exclusively. I don't want to keep pursuing relationships and people. I don't want to keep drinking my life away or or taking drugs. I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust that he has what it takes to redeem my brokenness, to redeem my life, to make something valuable out of it. And when we turn from our sin and we trust Jesus, God does two things for us. One, he makes us new. You know, so many times we think I've got to um, I, I'd like to come back to God, but I need to clean myself up first. I got I to gotta, I gotta fix myself up so I look presentable when I come before God. Or, or you think, um, you know what? I, I need God in my life because I want Him to, to, to fix me up a little bit. I want him to clean. God's not going to fix you up. He's not going to clean you up, and you can't clean yourself up. What He's going to do is when you turn, to, turn from your sin and trust Jesus, He's going to make you new. He's going to put a new spirit in you. He'll make you a new creation, the Bible says. Uh, uh, Scripture says he will give you a new heart. God wants to take all of you, and he loves you like you are, but he wants to make you new on the inside, and that's what he'll do. And then he'll give you the opportunity to follow Jesus with the rest of your life. When you turn and trust him, he will give you the opportunity to do that. He's been inviting people to do that. For 2,000 years, he made that first invitation for people to turn from their sin and trust Jesus and follow with their lives. He made that first invitation 2,000 years ago, but he hasn't stopped. He's still making that invitation today. In fact, you may be here today and you've never... Made a decision to trust Jesus with your life. You've never turned from your sin. You've, you're still doing all this stuff because you think, I feel the brokenness. I'm groaning. My creation is groaning. I know it's not right, but this is what I'm going to do. But you've never made that decision to turn and trust Jesus. And I, I believe that God may have something bigger for you today. You know, maybe you're just here because your mom's been inviting you for a while and you felt like, well, it's Easter. Maybe I should go to church. Or or your neighbor just wouldn't shut up about this church they've been going to and you think, okay, if I come to church with you on Easter, will you just shut up and stop asking me? Maybe that's why you're here today, but I believe that God has something much bigger for you. I believe he's offering this invitation to turn from your brokenness, to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus with your life and to follow him for the rest of your life and he's gonna promise to make you new. He wants to redeem your life. He wants to turn you from your brokenness and sin and give you a new life, give you a new spirit, give you a new heart and take all this pain and all this brokenness and redeem it and use it for your good. Or maybe you're here and you are a follower of Jesus and you've been following for a long time. You've been coming to church, but but maybe you're not following with your whole heart. Like there's an area of your life that you just haven't let God into. you it's it's too messy, it's too messed up. And you don't want to let him in there. I think God may have an imitation for you too. He may be saying to you, give me that piece too. Like I like I want all of you. I created you. I know that your inmost being. I know what your heart's like. I want it all. I want to take, I can even take that piece that's so broken and I can redeem that. he, say, he, he may be saying, I paid for all of you. And you're not giving me all of you. You God can take any part of our life, and He can make something good and valuable out of it. He can use it for your good. Bertrand Russell was a philosopher in the 20th century. He was an outspoken atheist, and he wrote a book, in fact, a book called uh, "Why I'm Not a Christian." Um, And I just want you to know, we're we're starting a brand new series in two weeks called "Why I'm Not a Christian." And uh, we're actually going to take four of the most common objections that, that non-Christians have towards uh, the idea of becoming a Christian, and we're going to talk about those four things. And so I want to invite you back on April 30th uh, to, celebrate, or to, to hear that sermon with us. Um, but when uh, Russ, Bertrand Russell, the atheist, was 81 years old, uh, his health was deteriorating. He did an interview with BBC in Britain um, and the radio on the radio. A radio reporter asked him, like, what do you have? Now, now that you're at the end of your life, you're coming to a close like, what do you have to hold on to when death is so close and Russell responded in a very honest but also a very hopeless way and he said I have nothing to hold on to but grim unyielding despair and while I appreciate his honesty I I just can't imagine getting to the end of my life thinking that it was all ready to just be gone like poof 60, 70, 80, 90 years by God's grace of life and love and experience and sadness and fun and tragedy, all of it just gone. But here's the reality. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who have decided to turn their sin and trust jesus and then there are those who've decided to just live in their brokenness and keep pursuing these things that are going to get them nowhere they're the bertrand russells of the world that that are stuck in this cycle of trying to escape and trying to fix things on their own and the very harsh reality is that all of us have the same choice to make so my i guess my plea for you on easter don't miss Jesus. You know when Jesus walked the earth and at the very his very last days, many people, in fact, most people in the world missed him. Think about this: when Jesus uh, was standing before Pilate ready to be crucified. There was a crowd, the Bible says, there was a crowd there shouting, crucify him. But then he rose from the dead. He appeared to a lot of people. And then when he ascended into heaven and the first church started in the book of Acts, you know how many people showed up? 120. 120 got it. A crowd missed him. And if you look at the world today, the truth is that most people are missing Jesus. Don't miss Jesus a hundred years from now it's the only thing that will matter in your life where you lived won't matter what you drove won't matter how much money you made won't matter the only thing that will matter a hundred years from now is did you decide to turn from your brokenness turn from death and trust Jesus with your life or did you want to spend the rest of your life here let's pray together Heavenly Father, I am uh, very aware this week of the groaning of creation. I think it's become really aware to, or really uh, apparent to a lot of us that, that the world is broken. And some of, that, some of us, that's uh, just looking at the world and world events this week. And for some of us, that's right here in our own homes, in our own workplace, in our own schools. God, we see a broken world and we know we understand that there's only one way out and that's to turn from it and to trust Jesus with our lives. Father, on Easter, I can only imagine there are people here in this room that have never made that decision to trust Jesus with their life. And so if that's you, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never decided you want to follow him, you've never been made new, you've never cashed in on this redeeming promise of God, I want to pray with you right now you can just pray this prayer with me. God, I'm tired of fighting the brokenness on my own. I want to turn from my sin and trust your son Jesus with my life. Lord, I need you to make me new and I want to follow you the rest of my life. And if you're here today and you are a Christian, you're a Christ follower, but you would say there's a part of your life you've never given over to God, I just want you to in your mind, in your heart, just release that right now. If you're ready, just say to God, take this, whatever it is, take this part of mine, take this piece of my life that I've been keeping back from you. Lord, I want want you to have all of me. I want all of me to be redeemed. I want every part of me to have something good made out of it. And you can hand that over to him. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And because he made that sacrifice, we can live forever. Let's trust him today. Let's turn from our sin. Pray these things in Jesus' name.